0: South
1: African native, Mr. Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah, the man chosen to replace John Stewart on The Daily Show, is much more than the sum of his tweets, although we'll get to those.
2: I grew up in a mixed family, well, with me being the mixed one in the family. So, uh, you know, my, my, my father is a white man, Swiss. Um, my mother is a black woman, Cossa that's uh, born in South Africa. So that's how I came out like this and this this was illegal at the time you know you weren't you weren't allowed to have uh, obviously mixed relationships when i was born obviously my mom and my dad were rebels you know they had that whole vibe and my mom was obviously aspirational she was like yeah i'm going to get a white man yeah you know? and then my dad well well you know how the swiss love chocolate so i mean you know <laughs>
1: Trevor Noah brought his one-man show from South Africa to New York a couple of years ago. He had a long talk with my guest today, stand-up comic Pete Dominic. Well,
0: one of the things I think is a great choice about... Trevor Noah, because you said a lot of people learn about America in The Daily Show. Well, I think Trevor Noah will teach America
2: about how a lot of the people in the world think of it. I used to hate um, American sports. I won't lie to you. I used to hate them. I was like, these things are stupid. How can you score, like, every few minutes and still cheer about it? I didn't understand that concept. I used to watch basketball and go, surely after the fifth time, it's not worth cheering about anymore. (laughs) Because in soccer, you score once or twice, and everyone's like, I can't believe we scored! And then you guys are like, we scored for the Sixteenth time, ba, ba, da, ba, da. we scored again. <laughs> and I'm like, why are you still cheering?
1: <laughs> on WaveMaker Conversations, it's the Trevor Noah episode. I'm Michael Schulder, and before comedian Pete Dominic joins me to talk about the man of the moment and broader issues in comedy, I want to share one of Trevor Noah's early routines with you. It was captured in the documentary called "You Laugh, But It's True," and the backstory on this film is great. Seven years ago, the director David Paul Meyer was a graduate. student. Student at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. Meyer decides to do his thesis on humor in Africa because so little positive news is coming out of that continent. One thing leads to another. Meyer comes across an ambitious South African comedian in his mid-20s who'd only been at it a couple of years. The thesis turns into this great full-length film on Trevor Noah. So, from You Laugh, But It's True, here's Noah's routine on white South Africans trying to adjust to post-apartheid democracy.
2: Every single time elections come up in South Africa, people always start to panic, you know? Ever since our first democratic elections in 1994, Nelson Mandela was about to become president, people started panicking. You remember that? There were people, you'd hear them, I'm leaving, I'm going to Australia. (laughs) I'm going. It's been fun, Mary, but it's time to go, eh? It's time to go. They're going to take over now. And then Mr Mandela became president, and they all stayed. He's a wonderful man. Wonderful. If it wasn't for him, I would have left, eh? Hey? A wonderful man. Yeah, he's really
3: great.
2: Next elections came. Thabo Mbeki was about to become president. People panicked again. I'm leaving. I'm going. Australia. I'm going. I swear, I'm leaving Mary, hey? Now that Mandela's gone, you know they're going to eat us. Oh, and then it was Jacob Zuma. ooh, the original boogeyman. Yeah, that's when you heard people panicking. Things were different though in South Africa, because for the first time in our history, you heard black people going, how much is that ticket to Australia again?
1: Joining me on this Wavemaker conversation, uh, one of the very funniest stand-up comics and best-read comedians I know, Pete Dominic, host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic, which is a daily three-hour talk show on Sirius XM Radio. Starts at 9 a.m. last till noon. You can see it on his website, which is Stand Up with Pete Dominic, right?
0: Yeah. When you said one of the funniest comedians, I was so excited because I thought we had Brian Regan on the show, Michael. <laughs> Great to be
1: here. I, yeah, there are only a couple of comic names I know in Pete Dominic's. Dominic's one of them. Louis C.K. is the other. And um, and Trevor Noah, I know that name now. Suddenly, uh, 8,828 tweets compared to your 23,500 tweets. Who's funnier?
0: Well, he measuring funny is a very dangerous thing to do. That's like looking at a painting and saying, which one's better? It's comedy. It's subjective. And as a comedian who has toiled, who has done every terrible gig and every great gig... Uh, that you could possibly imagine. It really irks me when people say, he's not funny, she's not funny. You're entitled to have your opinion that this comedian isn't funny. But if you're me and you bought a house with money you made telling jokes, or if you're Larry the Cable Guy and you sell out arenas all over the country, to someone somewhere, or to a lot of people somewhere, you're funny.
1: All right, now here's the struggle that all you funny people have to deal with. I assume you've you've read the the tweets in question that have really caused a stir. Uh, if if you haven't, I'll re, I'll read them for you. We'll read them for all of us. Some of them I'm, I'm uncomfortable reading, but that's okay. Well, here's one, but this is more political. South Africans know how to recycle, like Israel knows how to be peaceful. So, but that's not the one that he's accused of being anti-Semitic for. Of course, here here are the key ones. Uh, and now, again, keep in, keep in mind when these are from. So, this one is from, I believe, 2009. Almost bumped a Jewish kid crossing the road. He didn't look before crossing, but I still would have felt, felt so bad in my German car. Okay, here's another one. May 2014. Behind every successful rap billionaire is a double as rich Jewish man. This one, uh, this one uh, offended uh, uh, Jews and women. Messi gets the ball, and the real players try foul him, but Messi doesn't go down easy, just like Jewish chicks. So now that got a chuckle from you, you anti-Semite. Yeah. This this one this one has really got a lot of women angry. Oh yeah, the weekend people are going to get drunk and think that I'm sexy, fat chicks everywhere. OK, so they are the offending ones. And what do you think? And this is really going to lead to a discussion of where is the line in comedy? Should there be a line? How do you identify it? Go ahead, Pete Dominic.
0: Well, first of all, I don't think any of those are, are actually very funny. They, they're all kind of formulaic and they've all been done before. It's always more risky to take a shot at the group that you're not part of. Trevor Noah is, uh, both black and white. His mom is half Jewish. Does that give someone carte blanche to make jokes about those groups? I don't think so. But it, it, w- the, there is no uh, line per se. We don't look for a line and cross it. We don't see lines. We don't think about lines. We don't say, oh, I was over the line. Uh, it's not how we look at things. And, and if really, if there were a line, we probably would want to cross it, some of us, not all of us. But we don't think I don't think that comedians think about things that way. I don't think comedians until fairly recently really started thinking about what would offend people because Twitter has changed the game on that to some extent.
1: Although I want to take you back just just a little bit because, as you know, we've spoken before. My father was a stand-up comedian, uh, my late father, Bobby Shields. And so these are the days before, way before social media. But when he would work places, there were some venues like Cruise Lines where they would hand out comment cards. And everybody who saw the show would fill in the comment card. And you could have a thousand people in the audience. And if two people said, you know, I found his routine on this subject a little offensive or too dirty, he would get a call and then he'd have to make that decision. Do I take the uh, the part that offended those two people out and then it becomes less funny? Or do I just stick with my routine and risk my job? Right. How do you relate to that? It's
0: important to know who your audience is. It's important to know who's paying you and whether or not you'd like to work there again. And I think that the people at the cruise line or the people at the comedy club need to consider that as well, if somebody's always going to be offended. I had a night out in Long Island, one of the greatest performances I'd ever had at this club, which I I always did well at, but I never really did great. On this particular night, I did none of my jokes, Michael. It was all improv, it was all crowd work. I said to a woman, are you Italian? She says, I am Italian. I speak Italian, because I'm Italian as well, and I started speaking Italian. She didn't know a lick of Italian. I said, well, you're not a real Italian. The next night I came back, The comedy club owner told me that that woman was very, very offended that I said she wasn't a real Italian. He was very upset with me. He said he didn't didn't like it. And I said, it's probably the greatest night I've ever had at your comedy club. The best performance I've ever had. The most laughs. I understand that this woman was offended, but I wouldn't take it back. I don't think that's an offensive thing to say in any venue, but her perspective is hers. And she can own it, but the, again, you have the, the owner, the manager has to take into consideration the entire context of the performance, the entire context, in this case, uh, for Trevor Noah or anybody else, of their career. Do we, in fact, hold a comedian uh, by one joke, by a few tweets? Is that the whole of them, especially when they were younger? I don't think that we should. Plus, whether, with Twitter... You don't get a facial expression. You don't get tone. You don't get sarcasm. It's words, and you don't know where to put the emphasis. You don't know if it's being said uh, sarcastically. And sometimes people take things literally or seriously when they're actually being said sarcastically. So uh, a a lot of the outrage that we see, I think, is misplaced.
1: Which makes it all the more important that we sort of hear from Trevor Noah... Rather than hear his, his tweets, because you know, he tweeted after this whole thing blew up, to reduce my views, and this is sort of what you're saying, uh, but, but you got into more nuance, but he said, to reduce my views to a handful of jokes that didn't land is not a true reflection of my character, nor my evolution as a comedian. So that last part at least acknowledges, hey, those tweets weren't funny, but not all tweets have to be funny, and we are missing the body language. Let me ask you, just, just so our audience, those who are even those who are familiar with you, really many of, you, many of them do not know how many hours you have put in on stage as a stand-up comic. So you are how old now?
0: I will be 40 in October. I'm 39 years old still. Still in my 30s.
1: Still in your 30s, and yeah. Trevor is 31. Mm-hmm. You've been doing stand-up since you were how old? Uh, 18. Okay, and some of those very formative years, I know, were spent at The Daily Show and at The Colbert Report. Yep. So, let me know, and let our audience know, what did you do exactly at The Daily Show? Uh,
0: for both programs, uh, The Daily Show must have been in 2004, uh, and then in 2005... I did the same job at the Colbert Report, where I I was there for six years and over a thousand episodes as the audience warm up comedian. So every night I went out, got the audience fired up. Uh, but basically, I did my stand up, I did comedy. Most of it was improv, audience work. Then I handed them, uh, then I introduced Jon Stewart, handed him the microphone, and left. Same thing with Colbert, where I was for almost six years. I left, came back, and then left again. Uh, but I same thing, I introduced him, handed him the microphone. And some nights it was 15 minutes, some nights it was an hour. But I uh, did that every night. It'll it'll always be one of the hardest and uh, and best gigs I've I've had in my career.
1: Why why hard?
0: Because the audiences at those shows are the smartest audience you could ever get, and they won't accept anything that's contrived. So if it sounds like it wasn't true, if it sounds like you made it up, they're not going to laugh at you. A. B. The diversity of those audiences diversity of audience makes comedy harder so if you've got old people young people black people white people uh, foreign foreigners Americans people that just don't have a lot of overlap maybe in their sense of humor uh, and you're trying to make all of those people in one audience laugh diversity of age ethnicity and and background language that's hard to do uh, and uh, I was able to do that night in and night out so that that's always an honor that's always that's also true often of New York audiences because of the diversity, but they're not as smart. See, The Daily Show and The Colbert uh, Report, the, these are the smartest uh, people that you could be entertaining.
1: And I, and I guess, you know, that, that's part of why, in, in my mind, people are so worked up about this choice because, you know, this is not only one of the smartest audiences, it's a global audience. A lot of people around the world learn about America and America's attitudes through this show. So, my God, what's at stake in terms of choosing the replacement.
0: Well, one of the things I think is a great choice about Trevor Noah, because you said a lot of people learn about America from The Daily Show. Well, I think Trevor Noah will teach America about how a lot of the people in the world think of it. It's very, it's always interesting. Every time he starts a joke when he's performing in America, not every time, but often you'll hear Trevor Noah say, you know, you Americans, and refer to America and Americans because he's not one of us. He hasn't been here long. I love that point of view. I think more people should be curious about what the rest of the world thinks of us. And I think that he's putting that mirror up and that's the one thing that he'll be able to do at The Daily Show that none of the other people that were being considered or talked about can do. I think I think that's a fascinating uh, choice in this globalized world where you can reach out and Google and look at the suburbs of Australia or have a Skype conversation with someone in Israel that is a great choice for
1: that reason. Well, you know, it almost reminds me of what we learn when we read the Economist, which is a British publication.
0: We, <laughs> I mean, I subscribe, but just for my coffee table, I don't actually open it.
1: <laughs> well, I can, I can, I can read you passages at bedtime tomorrow if you want. <laughs> don't
0: put me right. But, uh,
1: but, but, you know, very often it's the outsider that notices the thing that's right in front of your eyes, but you, you didn't yep. quite capture or see. Right.
0: Yeah, it's been fascinating. As we've debated certain things like capital punishment and universal health care, how the Canadians and the Europeans are looking at us and go, really?
1: You guys with your guns. Wow. Let me go back to this point you were making, though, about, you know, the watching the body language and understanding because what we're really talking about here in this debate about Trevor Noah is we sort of want to know what's in his heart. I mean, certainly a couple of those tweets sounded maybe anti-woman, maybe sounded like could have been anti-Semitic, but you don't really know because, again, you didn't see. Was there a twinkle in the eye? Was there, you know, or was it just a bad sort of immature joke?
0: Saying Israel, you know, we have to be careful Uh uh, to to ever lump in um be, being critical of israeli government or foreign policy with being anti-jewish we have to be a, we have to point out how hacky it is to make a jewish people are cheap jokes which is what he did there that's cheap uh and it's a cheap joke to make jew jewish people are cheap jokes it's hacky it's unoriginal
1: or jewish or in that case jewish people are rich
0: yeah either way it's un unor- it's it's unoriginal unless done in a, in a very clever way and a lot of jewish comedians especially get away with that i you know i have a very funny uh, jewish comedian friend of mine who's doing a joke about how he doesn't look jewish and he loves to hear people be anti-semitic not knowing that he's jewish and out himself to them i mean there are so many different ways to take these but trevor noah you know, in one case, it's hacky. In another case, Israel is uh, he's making an analogy about Israel being a warring nation, which they are. You could argue they are defending themselves. They get a lot of problems. They're in a rough neighborhood. I don't think that one's that risky. Uh, but, you know, I don't the, the German car thing uh, is is a subtle reference to the Holocaust. I don't think it's a great joke. See, comedians can make jokes about cancer, nine eleven, the Holocaust, you name it. The problem is, if it's not funny, then you should get in more trouble. You got to be funny if you're going to take that risk. That's my opinion. You could say something about my own family, my own kids. It better be funny. Those are the
1: rules. This gets back to, and again, as you said, not everyone's going to find it funny. But this gets back into a, of course not, an interview that a lot of people were were talking about in November when it came out. Chris Rock. Uh, being interviewed in New York Magazine by Frank Rich. He said, a few days ago, I was talking to Patton Oswalt. You know him? Oh, he's the great One of the best. Okay. And he was exercised. This is a quote from Chris Rock. And he was exercised about the new reality that any comedian who is trying out material that's a little out there can be effed. By someone who blasts it on Twitter or a social network. He's, and then he goes on to say, I know Dave Chappelle bans everybody's phone when he plays a club. I haven't gone that far, but I may have to to get an act together for an hour. Mm-hmm. And then he's asked, and I got, I got, I got to read this to you. because. So he's asked by Frank Rich, does it force you into some sort of self-censorship? And here's his answer, and then I want to get your reaction. He says, it does. I swear I just had a conversation with the people at the Comedy Cellar about how we can make cell phones into cigarettes. If you would have told me years ago that they were going to get rid of smoking in comedy clubs, I would have thought you were crazy. It's scary because the thing about comedians is we are the only ones who practice in front of a crowd. Prince doesn't run a demo on the radio, but in stand-up, the demo gets out. There are a few guys good enough to write a perfect act and get on stage, but everybody else workshops it and workshops it, and it can get real messy. It can get downright offensive. Before everyone had a recording device and was wired like like F and Sammy the Bull, you'd say something that went too far, and you'd go, oh. I went too far, and you would just brush it off. But if you think you don't have room to make mistakes, it's going to lead to safer, gooier stand-up. You can't think the thoughts you want to think if you think you're being watched. And then he goes on to say at the Comedy Cellar, if I messed up a word here or there, which I did, I could really be get him out of here offensive. But you just watch to make sure nobody tapes it. You watch and you watch hard and you make sure the doorman's watching. What Patton's trying to say is like comedians need a place where we can work on that stuff. And by the way, and this is a, this is the end of his quote, an audience that's not laughing is the biggest indictment that something's too far. No comedian has ever done a joke that bombs all the time and kept doing it. Nobody in the history of stand-up. Not one guy.
0: Well, Rock is completely 100% right. The only thing I would really add is the difference with, with no-name no comedians and super-famous comedians. So if I go on stage, there might be one or two cameras out, which shows the level of my recognition or their interest in, in, in filming me and sharing it with their friends. When Chris Rock walks on stage or Jerry Seinfeld walks on stage, everybody wants to take their phone out. Now these guys I know these guys some of them I know them well others I, I, I know their work well but but certainly I know Chris Rock and I know his work and I've seen him pop in the comedy clubs Dave Chappelle famous comedians they come in. Why do they come in? because you've got to workshop the material. you've got to uh, punch it up constantly over and over and over. Chris Rock doesn't even do his personality when he's on stage at the Comedy Cellar and other places. He's literally up there sometimes with a notepad just trying out the wording of jokes. And you feel bad for these guys when people take their cameras out. You really do. And as the MC of the show, it's your responsibility to make sure that they know the rules. Don't film. It sounds arrogant. Don't film me. It's not. A lot of comedians have gotten a lot of trouble. Again, context matters when you just take out a joke and and put it up on YouTube, you don't know what the guy said just before that. You don't know where, what he might've been responding to from Michael Richards, who yelled the N word at the laugh factory to Tracy Morgan, who got in trouble. There's just countless comedians who have gotten in trouble. It's because a, our outrage culture b the instant ability to, to upload things. Uh, and then the ubiquitousness of, of cameras, uh, and, yeah, it, it's a different thing for a famous comedian, but then you have another guy who may not be, uh, who wasn't a household name yet, but he basically became one uh, overnight, and that's the comedian uh, who outed Bill Cosby. So, we're talking about Hannibal Burris here. Hannibal Burris, you know, called Bill Cosby a rapist, and that was the beginning of the end of Bill Cosby, because someone was filming that in the audience.
1: And so... So should cameras, I mean, should they be like cigarettes where there's, there's, there's a more, even more watchful eye than there is now?
0: You should never film a comedian at a comedy club. You can take a picture, don't film it. Uh, It will, or if you're going to film it, don't post it and share it with your friends. It's just, I understand anybody's instinct to want to, especially if they're famous and they're big and they're fans. But at comedy clubs, especially, you're generally going there to work out material. You're not. That's not the place where you're going necessarily to make your living, especially if you're a famous comedian. If you're me, you're making your living. If, if Hey, if you're me, film me and maybe put it out there. Let people go out and get, get outraged by it. It'll probably help my career, but uh, probably not at the same time. When I started working at CNN, Michael, uh, you know, being a contributor there, hosting a show there, I definitely tamed down my act for fear that someone would put a clip out of me and say, CNN contributor Pete Dominic said this, and it would be like, oh, boy, here we go.
1: In a moment more with Pete Dominic, and you'll hear Trevor Noah describe for Pete his very first time visiting a Walmart. Let's just say he lost his discipline.
3: With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband.
2: Happy 36 and a half.
3: Or your cat. Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. I'll hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our five ninety nine mix and match deal at dominoes.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at dominoes.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Looking to get the best deals at your favorite stores? CBS Local Circulars has you covered with access to the hottest sales around. From electronic stores to baby stores and everything in between. Go to circulars.cbslocal.com. Today to get great deals from retailers like Target and Macy's.
1: This is the WaveMaker Conversations Trevor Noah episode. Noah is John Stewart's replacement on the Daily Show. My guest, stand-up comic Pete Dominic. So, how much latitude do you feel you have on your show? On because you you have a lot a lot of political guests, people who are dealing with really issues that involve the Commons, but. ironically, very divisive issues, right?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, on my radio show, I have as much latitude as I want because I have as much context as I want. I have a record of everything that I said that I can combat something taken out of context. Mine was the radio show where, of course, Rick Sanchez made his fateful remarks uh, and lost his job the next day. And so, you know, there's... And and any given day, someone can say something that offends or outrages a, a large group of people. But on my radio show, I don't worry about that because of my sensibilities. My sensibilities are are pretty uh, open minded. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a hateful person about any group or any way of thinking. So I don't really worry about it. We're uncensored. And I get uh, no editorial interference from from my bosses. And so, you know, we bring on uh, provocative guests from time to time, but we have them speak their mind and we talk about divisive issues, but we're honest about them.
1: OK, so I got it. So I got to ask you, because you you seem to have such a range of guests on your show. Yeah. So you're a comedian. You're clearly I mean, you joke that you don't read The Economist. Maybe you don't read The Economist. What do you read every day? What's your what's your reading routine? Where do you get your information?
0: Uh, I just go to uh, High Times, just the marijuana magazine every morning. <laughs> I get everything from there and then we just do the show. I read. I must take in uh, usually or newspapers. You look at all the op-eds. There's a great website called Daily Op-Ed, by the way. It's your cheat sheet for all the op-eds. So Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, USA Today. Yeah, that's right. I said it. And, the, of course, the New York Times. Uh, so I'll read the newspapers to get the, the news and to get opinions. And and uh, But I also I, I watch a lot of documentaries. Uh, I read a lot of books that are focused on one policy, education policy or economics, foreign policy or environmentalism. Uh, I, I read a lot of blogs um, and Twitter. I mean, Twitter is a great place to get news. So I spend about three hours every day preparing. But a lot of that isn't just the news. It's it, we're, we're too focused on on what's relevant today. And I think that I just introdu- interviewed a, a great historian, uh, Thomas Fleming, talking about comparing Jefferson and Washington. And it's it's important. It's important to learn history. It's as important to know history as it is to know the causes of a plane crash in my mind, if not a lot more important, frankly. So I think everything is relevant all the time. The news cycle might not agree. The ratings might not agree, but uh, it is. And we move on from outrage to outrage, issue to issue, fear to fear, whereas it's great to have the context of history and, and, and talk about an, an issue in its entirety
1: all, all my listeners are going to go to your show now that's it I'm finished
0: well that'll make five for us we're very excited <laughs> very with your four and my one now yeah I mean I love and really enjoying your podcast as well
1: you, you mean you mean wavemaker conversations with michael shoulder
0: I'm Pete Dominic Wavemaker conversations is one of my imp- most important resources in getting prepped for my stand-up. With Pete Dominic, daily national radio
1: program. It's pretty obvious uh, for anybody who who listens to your stand-up. But thank you. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Let let me ask you something. uh, Going back to, again, the line and this whole—because this is fascinating. And and you know what? This gets into—this is going to sound tangential, okay? There's a woman, Carol Dweck, who I interviewed, who is— uh, she's become very well-known in education and parenting circles for her work that she calls Mindset. And she was trying to figure out very early in her career as a psychologist. She was studying children who were like 9, 10 years old. And some of them would come in that the challenge would be do this puzzle. And if it was an easy puzzle, everybody would do it. And if it was a challenging puzzle, some kids would do it. They would relish the challenge. And other kids would shy away from it. They were afraid of failing. And she set about to figure out what's the difference between these two types Types of kids, and this is relevant to comedy because she, she she found out that there is there is one type of person who she who has what she has labeled the growth mindset, and the growth mindset means you know we can grow, we can learn by making mistakes. There's nothing wrong with that. Struggle is all part of it. Obviously, a nine year old wouldn't articulate it that way, but that was the gist of it. People with a fixed mindset believe you're either born good or you're not. So in a comics frame of reference, you're either funny or you're not. And if I don't get laughs tonight, I'm not funny, so I'm not going to take the risk, right? So a comedian has to have a growth mindset. In fact, that brings us back to Trevor Noah. I mean, you know, he's got to have the resilience now. To get up there through all this heat and say, you know what? I've done some unfunny stuff, but I'm still growing. And by the way, if you watch this documentary that was made uh, that was made on him from a number of years ago, you'll see him in his late 20s, totally with a growth mindset. You know, I'm just starting now. I'm not that great, but I'll get there. So so tell, tell me how that works in your life.
0: You've got to have that as a comedian. You're constantly failing, constantly failing. I mean, in a moment... Or an entire an entire gig sometimes. I mean, and and if you if you want to continue doing this, then you've got to get back up there. And it's extremely humiliating and frustrating and embarrassing. And often, Michael, people will say, I don't know how you do that. You're so brave and you're so courageous and and, and so on. And I'm sure your dad heard that. Everybody who stands in front of an audience and, and tries to make them laugh and does make them laugh gets so much respect. Well, I used to take that. And I used to embrace that compliment and enjoy it and go, well, you know, whatever, however I. The truth is, we have to do it. Those of us who choose to stand up in front of audiences and make them laugh, we've got to do it. It's like a drug to us. It's a constant validation. Uh, I don't do as much stand-up as I used to do. I used to do every night, sometimes three, four, five shows a night. I have a national radio show. I've got a family, so I don't do it as much. I don't also need it as much. Granted, I still get the validation from having hosting a national radio show and so on. But it's about needing it. And so you'll deal with the failure and you will as a result, whether you like it or not, grow as a comedian. Most comedians will grow as a comedian. You may not grow as a person, but you will grow as a comedian. And I and and, and Trevor Noah has that a very entrepreneurial uh, mindset. He's a risk taker. He's an international guy. I've seen his growth as a comedian. For goodness sake, he speaks, what, five or six languages. He grew up in South Africa. His point of view, his life will be interesting. It'll matter, and I think he'll continue to grow and mature,
1: just like John Stewart And, has. and by the way, you've interviewed Trevor Noah. When did you interview him? What did you talk about?
0: About two years ago, I interviewed Trevor Noah, and I
2: asked him a lot about what he thought about America. Your gun laws. <laughs> we don't understand how everyone can have a gun. Like, I was in Walmart... Where was I? I was, I was somewhere in the West, uh, mid, mid, yeah, Midwest somewhere. And, and I no wanted to brag. Walmart. No, no, no. And I, <laughs> and I'd never, I'd never seen Walmart in my life. I'd never seen anything like it. I oh, still it's like have I haven't It's seen. not unlike what I believe heaven looks like. It's like Walmart was just insane. What I do you bought, mean? I bought everything. I, yes. I, I bought literally as much as I could just because I you could. Can buy, yeah, you can and buy. And this was at 2 a.m. by the way. My, a flight <laughs> of mine got canceled and we were stuck in the city. And I just needed i needed uh, toothpaste, yeah I just needed toothpaste. So I said to the cab driver, please take me to a pharmacy and he said, there's no 24 hour pharmacy. I said, well I need toothpaste. He said, why don't I take you to Walmart? And I was like, what, but it's 2 a.m. He said, Walmart is 24 hours. And I was like, that's not possible. We went there and I lost my mind. And, and so you then I bought like, things that I didn't need. A lot more need. than toothpaste. Like what? I bought, for instance, I bought pillows because we were staying in a really horrible <laughs> hotel room. No, because the hotel, because the airports don't, the airlines don't give you great hotels, right? If the thing gets canceled, they take you to like a like a one star hotel that's next to the airport. Sorry your flight so, got canceled. Have you heard of the uh, hostel? Yes, on first Yes. So when I got there, I was like, "This is horrible." But then when I got to Walmart, I went, "I can fix this place. I can." So then I I had like a little extreme makeover of the the, the So I bought new linens for the bed. I bought pillows. I bought like I basically renovated my little hotel room, and Walmart, It was so cheap. Like, Walmart is dirt cheap. It's, it's basically yeah. like it's well, subsidized. Yeah, it's subsidized. People in, by, uh, in Bangladesh factories are uh, yeah, making much stuff, so. Uh, just, yeah, you can, you know, uh, you've got like a sweat discount. That's what you guys have in Walmart. <laughs> that's, you <laughs> know, so. <laughs> that's actually uh, aisle four, I think. Yeah, yeah you've got like Walmart. a little, like they ask you when you get to, do you have your sweat card? And you go, oh yes, I do actually. And then, <laughs> do you have and a Walmart save, sweat card? And then you save a lot, of, but they had guns in that Walmart. That's what shocked me. They actually, they had right. guns. And you know what's crazy? This is the crazy thing. I didn't what was crazy was not the guns because the guns I was like okay these are guns but I actually considered buying one because they were there I was like I've never had the opportunity to buy a gun and now it is here in front of me maybe hmm. I should get some with the yogurt you know <laughs> cuz I didn't need the yogurt
0: either it's fascinating he was fascinating and he also couldn't have been kinder to my producers which I always always notice when a celebrity comes in how do they treat everybody in the room and he treated everybody well
1: so here's a, here's a, well, speaking of, uh, well, let me see, a co- comic and daily show producer, Jenna Friedman. Did you know her? No. Okay, so maybe she's after your time. She, uh, she was uh, quoted today as saying, the way young comics become great comedians, and this is a theme we've explored, but the way young comics become great comedians is by testing the waters, saying things that may cross the line, experimenting with taboos. And then this is very interesting. She, she added, my comedic persona in my early 20s was sociopathic it took me years to find my voice and it will take me even more years to make it funny so did it take you years to find your voice
0: yeah you know i don't even think i ever found a voice i honestly don't i don't think people would if they if they said you know what what's pete dominic's comedy like uh what's his voice what's his point of view i never even i don't even know if i had one. my thing was any audience, anytime. I'll perform anywhere. I just wanted to work. So I can adapt my act to any anything, any moment, any event, any audience. Uh, so maybe I'd be called a chameleon, if you will. I like to make everybody happy. Uh, and sure, I get a little political. I get opinionated. But uh, definitely, definitely not uh, uh, really... I don't, fear is not an issue for me.
1: One of the, one of the things that we've spoken about in the past, you're a father, I'm a father, you know, you had a, uh, such a rigorous schedule when you were on the daily show and then the Colbert report and you made a conscious decision. You wanted to spend more time with your family and your daughters. Tell me what the tipping point was to steer you in that direction.
0: Uh, it was a moment in 2012, uh, November specifically 2012, it was just after the election. CNN was on. I was appearing on CNN every day for a few months at that point. Mitt Romney, uh, uh, President uh, Barack Obama election. And uh, CNN was on TV at home. And my daughter, who was eight at the time, said, Daddy, you haven't been on TV very much lately. And I said, yeah, does that bother you? Projecting my own insecurities like, well, I'm not making money from TV or I'm not getting recognized on the street. Like, well, what is it about that that bothers you? And so I said, yeah, does that bother you? And she just crinkled up her face. And she said, no, it means you're here more. When I was on TV, it meant I wasn't home. It's the only thing it meant. And I decided at that very moment, even though I'd been leaning towards it for a while, to reconstruct my career so that I could be with my family. I was so sick and tired of other fathers coming out to me and said, enjoy them while they're young, they grow up fast. And I think part of the reason why their kids grow up fast because they were always away working. So well, my daughters are are 10 and 7 right now and daddy puts them on the bus and daddy gets them off the bus and in the between he hosts his dream national radio show and uh, I think that's a pretty good definition of wealth.
1: I agree with you and and let me ask you something are you now you're not doing as much stand-up comedy as you used to but do you think that being a father and an engaged father has made you a funnier guy or just uh, a more centered person?
0: I don't know that it's made me funnier. That's a really interesting question. And I'd like to be doing a lot more stand up than I am. And the only reason I really don't is because it takes me away from my family again. But it's a muscle that you've got to keep flexing. So I do it enough to keep it, to keep my muscles strong and not atrophy. But my material doesn't develop as much. Uh, You tend to talk about the things in your life. And so you tend to talk about your family and your kids. And so, in some ways, it's—I don't know—that it has made me funnier. Because my, my, while my kids give me plenty of material, you've got to be careful with what you share. I think, out of respect for them, uh, to some extent, and you've got to be careful because it's probably been done by some other father who's a comedian before. So that your sources of comedy start to limit themselves when you when you limit your experiences. And I have limited my experiences to some extent than than I used to because being home with my kids is my main experience the one that I I love the most so um, I don't know that it's made me funnier because I'm just not having as many as a, as many experiences to joke about or they're you know they, they they repeat themselves that's what I want for my life I don't know that it feeds my comedy uh, but it, it's uh these are sacrifices that you make in your career so
1: any audience anytime unless it interferes with your two daughters
0: fair And your wife. Well, Or unless it's over three grand, (laughs) that's that's the bottom line. Bye, kids. Bye, girls. That's my wife's rule. What they offer you, how much, and you're going to stay home. But I want to go to her recital. You're going to be missing it. You'll watch it on tape. Now go host the brain cancer fundraiser.
1: What comics do you have your eye on these days? Because I'll tell you, a lot of comedians have podcasts, and a lot of people are discovering comic voices through these podcasts. But aside from Louis C.K., who I think uh, you know is on the top of a lot of people's lists. Um, who, who, who should we be looking for who can give us a perspective on our times that maybe we're not getting from just reading the straight news, uh, a perspective on our
0: times, uh, John John saying is great. Dino Bidala is great. Uh, Jamie Kilstein is this left wing radical vegan, uh, who's, who's an interesting young man. Uh, but um, the, to me, there's still I'm still a sucker for for the comedians who aren't necessarily the future. You know, George Carlin's well, there'll never be another George Carlin, but aren't necessarily commentating on on society and, and culture. I mean, the the two best right now, I would say that that are doing that, or maybe three are are Bill Burr, Jim Jeffries, and Patton Oswald. Uh, and, I mean, these guys, you know, J- Jim Jeffries has a huge, huge following, Michael, as an atheist, he has a huge atheist following because of a criticism of, of religion. Bill Burr a white guy who's always talked about race. Uh, he's, he happens to now be married to a black woman. Uh, and then, of course, Patton Oswald is is a fearless guy. David Cross as well. Another guy who's, who's really funny in his commentary. But I'm still kind of partial to the guys who don't really offend Uh, that are safe. In a way, I love them. I love Brian Regan. I love Jerry Seinfeld. I love these guys who just talk about sometimes the mundane, the experiences that we've all had that make us laugh. But, you know, going back to an earlier comment, I, I, I wish I had said this earlier. Some of the greatest comedians in the world, if you want to generalize, the greatest comedians in the world are from two ethnic backgrounds. They're Jewish and they're black. And there is a common characteristic and that is struggle, that is oppression, discrimination. And there's something that those who have been historically oppressed and discriminated against uh, find in comedy. And I think that that is, it's far harder to be a funny person when you've lived a privileged life and you've been handed everything in your life to go to the extreme, uh, opposite of what we're talking about here. And there's something about uh, comedians who come from, uh, you know, any group that's been discriminated against, as well as, They themselves, as an individual, even a a young white man who was made fun of because he was this or that, he had a speech impediment, he wasn't as good looking, he was fat. Though we find our comedy through our pain and we bring it on stage and we share
1: it with Embrace the struggle, all comedians. My best jokes
0: are about losing my hair, which was the most painful experience personally that I had in my life. Do you want to just, do you want to just, was it really? Yeah, which says how privileged I was, frankly, but for me, that was tough.
1: As my, as my daughter would say, a first world problem. Exactly. Certainly is. Give me a sense of the pain that losing your hair caused you. Well, the pain
0: was that that I'll never get a part, that I'll never get higher, that I'll never have a girl be attracted to me. That was the the, the real uh, visceral pain, which I, I really thought those things were going to come true. Of course, they didn't. Uh, But the jokes came in just the the, the living of it, the experience of it. Uh, One of my greatest jokes of all time was if you want to know what you look like to other people, uh, don't, uh, this is how I knew I was losing my hair. Don't look at a picture of yourself or in the mirror. Have a child draw you because kids are honest. They'll find your most insecure quality. You're five pounds overweight, not so kid. You're a fat circle. And that was one of my, it's always the joke that's been quoted the most because it's the truest, you know, everybody can relate to that. And so that's the one I stand by, my pain,
1: balding. You started this conversation by talking about the good tweets and the bad tweets, the good jokes and the bad jokes and how they have to be true at their core.
0: Yeah. There's got to be a truth behind it or else, in my opinion,
1: it's not going to be as funny. The Truth of Pete Dominic. Stand up with Pete Dominic, my friend, and uh, and truly one of the smartest guys I know, and super funny, even though he's not black or Jewish. What are you? That means a
0: lot coming from you. I'm nothing. I'm really nothing.
1: No, you're everything. What are you? Yeah, Tell man, the audience Italian, what you are. Italian,
0: Lebanese, Irish. The greatest story, though, about you and I is how we met. We met on a beach. Yes, we did. In Nantucket. You recognized me. I, I assumed that you recognized me because at that time I was on TV a lot. No, it was because you worked at CNN. And so so everybody knows everybody at CNN, certainly the people who were on air. I was excited, as I always was when someone recognized me. It just so happened that day I was trying out something new on the beach. The day I met you, the day you recognized me, I was wearing a European-style, tight-fitting man's bathing suit. (laughs) And I'll never forget that. Are you Pete Dominic? No, no, I'm Daughtry. A lot of people tell me I look like Pete Dominic, but nope, not today.
1: Uh, Pete, I have to be honest with you. I remember that bathing suit so well. I could hardly keep my eyes on your bald head. Yeah. You said the same thing my daughter did. (laughs) Do you have a
0: seashell in your
1: pants? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Pete Dominic, thank you for, uh, for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations.
0: Thank you for having me, Michael.
1: If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening.
3: With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our five ninety nine mix and match deal at dominoes.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at dominoes.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.